if you will turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. We begin a series of sermons through this uh, book uh, called Minor Prophets, not minor because the message is minor, but because they're shorter. Uh, I've been doing an informal survey this week of how many people had heard a series of sermons through the entire book of Habakkuk, and so far my count is zero. Uh, But you are in these days. It is such a timely message for us, as we will see based on what we've just considered. Uh, If you are opening your Bible and you're saying, I don't have any idea where Habakkuk is, if you'll open your Bibles about three-quarters of the way, you'll be about right there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 785. And when you get there, if you'll open the binding a little bit and uh, get it uncreased, uh, that'll be great this morning. Habakkuk, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk today, but I'm going to read just simply two verses as we begin, and they are verses 5 and 6 of Habakkuk chapter 1. I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect word of our sovereign God. Habakkuk 1, verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear these words and to apply them to our lives. Lord, help us to understand the agony and the anguish and help us to understand how to make sense of it all in light of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I drove far enough behind to try not to be seen, but I tried to drive close enough to where I didn't lose the car. As I followed my mom one evening, her life was spinning completely out of control. She was in absolute agony, anguish, and depression. My dad had left my mom after many, many years of marriage. And one day she wakes up and she is wondering how she is going to make it in life. She'd never paid a bill. She'd never pumped gas. And now she was completely on her own. And I was terrified about what she would do. I believed that she was going to kill herself. I often followed her when she left to make sure she was not headed towards some sort of altercation. On this particular night, I followed her, and when I figured out she was going somewhere safe, 
I went back to my house and I began to gather up all the sharp objects and hide them away. All the weapons, anything that I thought that she perhaps could use to take her own life. This went on for about two years. And I can't even recall how many times I just sat there in my house and wept. We hadn't been Christians long. My mom and I had been baptized at the same time. And I remember crying out to God. We just became Christians. How long do we have to go through this? Why do we have to go through this? Why do I have to see day after day this anguish and this pain and the result of this sin? I remember crying out, God, our lives were far more comfortable before we knew you. How long? Where are you? Why would you allow this? I had met a young girl during this time named Judy. She's rarely seen me cry, except during this period. I probably cried 10,000 times during that two-year period. Oh, Lord, how long? Why? Questioning God. Is it okay to do that? Or is it not? In our text this morning, we find the prophet Habakkuk doing that very thing. We see in the first five verses, and then on later, he is crying out. We've put the banner over it, the cry. He's in anguish. He's in tumult. He is in a sense of despair at what he sees. Look with me at verse 1. Oh, Lord, literally Yahweh, oh, covenant God is what he cries out. Well, first of all, before that, the oracle, the word means burden or to lift up, the burden that he's lifting up, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. We know almost nothing about Habakkuk, very little. But from what appears in this book, we can piece together the time period and have a sense of what was going on. Based on chapter 1, verse 6, we know this. The Chaldeans are coming. Those who will come to be known as the Babylonians. 
and they are going to rule, and they are going to rule fiercely. They will establish what would be known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire, known for its cruelty and known for its fierceness. They would take over control from the Assyrians who weren't exactly good guys themselves. Habakkuk was probably uh, converted to faith in God during the reign of the good king Josiah. That's where he probably began to love God and to cherish his word. But now things are completely different. So Habakkuk probably has a sense in which he knew what it looked like when times were good. And now times are not good. In fact, it's probably uh, happening during the reign of Jehoiakim, who is an evil, wicked leader. And Habakkuk, the, the prophet, the one who is raised up to speak for God, has a burden that God has given him. But he's sort of a reverse prophet. In most of the prophets, they receive the message from God and declare it to the people, and they confront the people for their unfaithfulness to the promises, unfaithfulness to the covenant. But Habakkuk questions God. And in some measure, he says, to call you Yahweh, the covenant Lord, and what I see doesn't make sense. Look with me as it continues in verses 2 through 4 as we, we hear him unloading his anguish. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And will you not hear or cry to you violence? That's what he sees all around him. And you will not save why do you make me see iniquity? He says, I look around and all I see is sin and rebellion. And why do you idly look at wrong? I see the sin and rebellion and the violence all around me, and I don't see you doing anything. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. The word means it's numb. It has fallen asleep. I do not see the law. I see rebellion. It's ignored. It's not active among the people. It is paralyzed. It is doing nothing. You are doing nothing according to the truth of your law, your word. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, is there any one of us who cannot identify with the prophet Habakkuk? He's crying out. He's questioning based on what he sees. What he sees among his people. He's not complaining about somebody else out there. He says in his own midst, amidst, in, in the midst of the people of Judah, this is what he sees. 
And his questions flow from the seeming conflict between a sovereign God who has made a covenant with his people and what he sees day by day. Do you understand the nature of his struggle? If God is sovereign, why is he allowing this? There are two groups of people here this morning. Those who have wondered and thought that, and those who are lying. That's the only two groups. We look around today and we have similar sort of conflicts within us. I mean, we have people going to a movie theater at midnight, families who'd probably been planning this for some time, some weird grown men dressed up in Batman suits. What should be a enjoyable evening ends up in a bloodbath. We look around us and we see what almost all human history has agreed on. The definition of marriage and yet in our context it is scandalous simply to say, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Scandalous. It brings a nationwide controversy. And we see these agendas that are simply seem to be tearing our cultural context apart. And at the very moment that I speak these words... There is a baby dying at the hands of an abortionist. And we call it a right. And what a day for God to bring us to this text, huh? As we see homes that are devastated and people who are trying to pick up the pieces. How long? Why? Why do you tolerate this? Why is this happening? He says it even stronger than we see it in the first few verses. In verse 12, if you'll look with me at the first part of that. Are you not from everlasting? It doesn't translate well. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, I thought you were everlasting. I thought you were infinite. I, I, I thought you did not sleep. Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. The cry goes out. And the question lingers. Is questioning God like this wrong? Now, some immediately say, Oh, yes, it is. 
You're never to question God. He's God. Who do you think you are? There, there tends to be the, the sense in, in, among some where uh, doing these sorts of things sort of earns God's favor. We, we appease God by not asking questions that are real questions within our heart and mind. We don't question him. It's almost a work we offer God. But I've got news for you. If you have these questions internally, and you do, you do not appease God because you refuse to voice them externally. One group says, don't even ask the why questions. Don't think about it. God is sovereign. You don't understand. Just shut up. There's another group who questions God simply because they reject him out of hand. They presuppose a rejection of God. It's not based on data, facts, or evidence. So every time something happens contrary to what they think should happen, they say, see, I don't believe in a God like that. Movie theater, bloodbath, see, see, you can't believe in a God like that. That's just simply unbelief. But there is another way. There's another path. There is a questioning of God in faith. We see it in other places throughout the Bible. We see it here so clearly. There is a crying out to God with a sense of despair. Not because you don't trust Him, but because you do. Where else is there to go? The true and living God. You cry out to him. You bring him your lack of understanding. Because you trust him. Because you don't understand. Habakkuk nowhere even hints that it is an option to stop following God. He nowhere even hints that it's an option to stop trusting God. He nowhere even hints that it's an option to stop praying to God. In fact, his questions are prayers. And don't miss, even in the midst of his holding up his anguish, Lord, my God, Holy One, Oh, rock, he says. No, he is fleeing to God because he trusts in him, because there's nowhere else to go. If he fled to you and I with these questions, what good is that? Absolutely, this notion that we don't ever question, just keep it superficial, keep some categories, don't think about it, put it out of your mind, is to be rejected. And certainly the self-idolatry of saying, I refuse to believe in God if he doesn't act the way I say he should act is to be rejected. But hear me this morning. It would be unfaithful not to question God in faith. 
not to turn to him with your questions and anguish. That would be unfaithful. Habakkuk is bold. Habakkuk is direct. But Habakkuk is absolutely dependent. There is no sense in the entire book that dependent on what answer he gets or if he gets it, he's going to walk away. There is an utter dependency upon God. This is the place where grace brings us. Grace brings us to the place where we go boldly to the God who is holy, 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 knowing that by His grace He has committed Himself to us. But because He is holy, 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 we are utterly dependent upon Him. God knows how we speak when we are in anguish, when we are desperate. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties, all your cares on Him because He cares for you. You know, there are times when I take my children somewhere and they are frightened. Big fireworks display and the loud noises. And they run to me. And you know the, their question. Why did you bring me here? This is terrifying. But they run to me. And I delight in it. And I say, as I said in Madison County, as one was in my arms, I said, Phoebe, trust me. Trust me. If you trust me, you'll like it. See, the problem is not that they ran to me questioning why I had them there. What would be awful is if they ran away from me when they were in anguish. If they ran away from me when they were in despair. See, there is a way in which they can come questioning what I have allowed or I have done, but they question in trust. But if she would have heard those fireworks and ran off into that field, that would have been another story altogether. I would have been devastated. Instead, I was delighted. When you run to God in faith, questioning he says trust me trust me remember who I am have I ever taken you anywhere and abandoned you but there's an amazing thing in this book of Habakkuk it is the rare occasion where Habakkuk gets an answer I mean, God doesn't just say, trust me. He gives an answer. And look how it starts in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. 
For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, with that beginning, there would be the tendency upon Habakkuk to think, there's going to be a revival so great I can't even imagine it. But that's not where it goes from here. God says, listen, I'm here, I'm watching, I'm about to act, and you're not going to believe it. Sometimes the only thing worse than not knowing why is finding out why. Look at what it says beginning in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, those who would become to be known as the Babylonians. Notice what God says, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I'm not asleep. I'm going to act. I see the injustice and the sin around it, and I'm about to judge it. And I'm going to judge it by sending the Babylonians. And Habakkuk saying, that's the only thing I can imagine worse. The ba Babylonians. Let, let me try to give it some context to you. You look around. You're crying out about injustice. Look, look at the injustice around me. Lord, how long? Why? Why do I have to see this? Are you not there? Are you, are you asleep? What's going on? God says, don't worry about it. I'm on it. I'm going to deal with it. I'm about to send Al-Qaeda. That is what this is like. And by the way, the Babylonians are a pawn in the hand of a sovereign God. And so is Al-Qaeda. God doesn't soft soap what these people are like. Notice as it continues. Verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than, evening, than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. He doesn't pretend like the Babylonians are fine fellows. The Babylonians are wicked, rebellious, fearsome, bloodthirsty men who worship their own power. Dealing with sin? Okay. I'm on it. The Babylonians are coming. Now, you get the flow of what's going on here, right? Habakkuk says, tell me. And God says, you won't understand. And Habakkuk says, tell me. 
God says, okay. And Habakkuk says, what? I don't understand. Yeah, that's what I told you. You know, in my house, one of the things that I do that my wife's not too fond of, if I have a really good hamburger, I'll just pause, look at the family and say, I just want to thank this cow for surrendering his life for me on this day. This is delicious. For eating some really good barbecue. I just will pause and say, I'm thankful that Squeaker went to the slaughterhouse for this moment. One time we had some games where we had a pig involved in the games and didn't know what to do with it afterward, didn't think about that. So I took it to the slaughterhouse and got it made into sausage. And Judy said, I won't eat that. Why? She said, it has a name. I called that thing Squeaker. I said, Squeaker tastes good, honey. (laughs) So because I do that, one of the things my kids will tend to do will be eating hot dogs Where's a hot dog come from? And Judy says, you don't want to know. Just eat it. See, there are those times. What are you going to do? Oh, you don't want to know. Well, okay. Here it is. Look at verses 12 through 17. We, we see the anguish continue. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to even see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and glad. The picture is the Babylonians come in, dragging the people and laughing as they pull them in. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net. He worships the power that he has to do that. Makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. He makes himself an easy life with his wickedness. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is this going to go on forever? Now here we're at a problem. There is an answer to the why. But we can't always understand it. My little Annabeth thinks that every meal should consist of nothing but crackers. One of her first words that she has ever spoken. Cracky! Cracky! And when you break out the crackers, she starts doing her hands up, kicking her legs up, yelling, cracky, cracky, cracky. It's like crack. (laughs) And you know what? When you put the crackers up, ah, why are you doing this? I can't understand it. 
don't you know I need another cracky? And so what I always do is I sit her down and I say, listen, if you understand the basics of nutrition and how the body works, you know that you need a balanced diet. And so that's the reason why I'm feeding you that green junk in the jar. And that's, I, I don't do that. I say, trust me. Then she keeps on, I say, shut up. Because you can't understand the answer doesn't mean there's not one. Or when the five-year-old says, where do babies come from? I'm glad you asked. I have some charts over here in the closet. <laughs> Let me show you how God uses these parts. I don't do that. I do that when they're 13. <laughs> you see, sometimes you just say, Trust me. By the way, I've got a track record with you. Trust me. And my track record is far from perfect. But God's is not. Let's try to make sense of it. We know Habakkuk's anguish, we know his cry, we have given it ourselves. And we have never been given this direct an answer. But we live in a position to make better sense of it than Habakkuk could have. Think with me for a moment. Why? Why the, the Babylonians? Well, it's been quite a while since then. And you know what historians look back and are amazed by? The Babylonians came and there was the dispersion. And the people were scattered all over. Places of worship sprung up all over. And then there was the Romans who came with an oppressive regime. And as we read the New Testament, they're chafing at Roman power and authority. But, but there was a, a great Hellenization, a great Greek influence, and there became a common language, and there became a, a Pax Romana. The oppressive power brought a peace that allowed this common language to disseminate information to these scattered people in amazing ways. And it seems that even those oppressive regimes in the plan of a sovereign God serve the purpose of the gospel going to the nations. And we read about it in the book of Acts. Of course, we don't get that view. But we do get the view of everything God has done. And we know He is worthy of our trust. But I also want to point you towards something else. You see, God, when he says, trust me, calls us to come to him with questions and all, to flee to him, to trust in him enough to bring our burdens to him. But there's an amazing thing as the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel in the book of Acts. 
In Acts chapter 13, verse 41, he, uh, in chapter 13, he's, he's preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He is declaring that Christ came, that he was the one who was crucified, and he is, he is emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 41, he says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. He offers the warning out of Habakkuk 1.5 right here as he is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Habakkuk was ultimately about Jesus. This, this cry, if there is injustice around, how can God be at work keeping his promises? How can he be faithful to his covenant when he seems to be ignoring what's going on? And there would come a day where Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Messiah, would be swept away by the authorities. He would end up stapled to a cross, mocked and ridiculed and spat upon. And we find Jesus of Nazareth undergoing judgment. And we find wicked men looking and laughing and saying, this is what we have done. Injustice, the ultimate injustice in human history. Look at what we've done as his blood spatters. And he seems so weak. They yell, if you're the son of God, come down and save yourself. If you're God, why aren't you doing something? Why do you seem so weak? Why do you seem so silent? Why is injustice? Why are the rebels nailing him to a cross? Why is the blood spattering from his head as they spit upon him? Why? Because in the plan of a sovereign God, his sovereign love to save his people, was so important that the very Son of God shed his blood for sinners. Sinners who would believe in him, trust in him. How can God bring good? How can he bring salvation? How can he bring deliverance out of injustice? How can God be at work when the, the wicked seem to prosper? Only in Jesus does it make sense. If you ignore Jesus, it will never make any sense. But if God can't bring good salvation and deliverance out of rebellion and injustice, and God can't accomplish his purposes when the wicked seem to prosper, if that can't happen, none of us are going to heaven. But it did happen. And it's not simply our hope when there are invading armies on the way. It's not just simply the reality that we see lived out in Jesus Christ. 
It's true in your daily life and my daily life. We live out the logic and the wisdom of the gospel. When we trust him and flee to him and cry out to him, no matter what we face. See, questioning in faith drives you deep in the gospel. See, the problem with saying, okay, I know I got the category God is sovereign. I don't, I don't understand this, but I'm just going to keep it simple, keep it shallow, keep, don't, don't question, don't say anything, don't think. It'll be okay, it'll be okay. The problem with that is it does not drive you deep in the gospel. When my daughter runs and jumps in my arms and says, why are we here? I am scared. And I say, trust me. And we get to the end of it, and she knows that I came through again. It drives her deep into my heart. It drives me deep into her heart. And when you run to God and you honestly say, how long? Why? And he proves himself to be what you know he is, is the reason why you're running to him. It drives you deep in the gospel. After that nightmarish two years of my life, I was steeped in the gospel in a way I never would have been any other way. For I had nowhere else to turn. And I'm glad that I had nowhere else to turn. Because nothing else, no one else, could have seen me through it. But Jesus, the crucified Messiah, the suffering servant, the Savior, and he's your only hope as well. Let's pray.